Tonight's topic is about a flower. Uh, more particularly, it's about tulip. Was tulip about? Tulip's about Calvinism. So uh, that's probably a word that is very polarizing to some of you. Probably not so to others who have no clue what it's about, but it gets re it gets referenced a lot in this Discord and in the Bible studies and these types of studies. Uh, and so because of because y'all don't know a ton about it, it's going to be good for us to go through it and uh, examine what Calvinism is arguing for because there's two major camps, Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, yeah, that's... Uh, we're just going to define the camp of Calvinism this week. I'm not sure if we're ever going to do a topical study on Arminianism, but, um, you know. We're, I, I'm, I'm doing both. I, I'm, I'm doing historical oh, context. Okay. Okay, it. you're addressing both. Good, good, good. Well, yeah. now I'm going to hand it off to Josh, who's going to pray for us, and he's going to get into the meat and potatoes of it. Okie dokie. Here we go. I will pray. Father, help us to understand the significance of those who have come before us in the faith, the battles they fought, the blood they shed for those glorious truths from your word and to honor them appropriately but not idolatrously and to ultimately believe your word and your word alone for in it we find all we need for life and godliness. Amen. All right. Uh, we're talking about Calvinism. And while Calvin might roll in his grave by us calling it Calvinism, it's helpful as a historically accurate term to describe the position. And so I'm just going to use it. It's just utility at this point, even if he would have been kind of offended, uh, especially since part of the central tenet of it is that all glory should go to God alone. And so, like I was kind of saying in my prayer, um, uh, if, if I were to say, and I would, if asked, are you a Calvinist? And I would say yes. That is not me saying that I follow John Calvin over and against other people or that I think he's the most accurate, perfect theologian, or I believe everything that he ever believed, etc. That's not what it means. It just means that I hold to a historically definable position that is often called Calvinism. Uh, let me set some historical context, and then I will define what is often called the five points of Calvinism or TULIP. And then I'm going to open the floor for questions about it as a idea um, that I think and I'm convinced is biblical. Now, can you be a Christian and not believe the things I'm going to articulate? To a point, yes. However, there are some things in it that no. <laughs> um, and, and I'll be able to distinguish some of those things. Uh, as we go along. Um, but it's important to say that at the beginning. Okay. Um, and a lot of people don't know what it is. Let me give historical background for myself for a moment and then for 
Calvin and Arminius, and then I'll explain the tulip. So when Justin said earlier that this is a controversial topic in some places and some circles, he is not kidding. Um, I became a Christian in 2011. I became a Calvinist in 2012. And uh, I was kind of, uh, at the time, heavily involved in a um, campus ministry at the university I was going to. And I began to read the Bible a lot. They gave me the opportunity to teach a Bible study way too quickly, way too soon. I was too young of a Christian to have any business doing it, but I didn't know that, and they shouldn't have let me. But regardless, I did, and I was so fired up about what I saw as a, well, honestly, it was the thing that made me realize that I wasn't a Christian before that point. I was a nominal Christian who did not truly believe and understand the gospel. Understanding the doctrines of grace, another word for Calvinism, or the five points of Calvinism, opened my eyes to my depraved state that I had been living in up to the point where I became a Christian and realized that I didn't just have a a, a turnaround point in my life where I I had been like backslidden or something. No, I I just wasn't a Christian before. And that was obvious once I understood this stuff. So as I began teaching the Bible study, I taught through the book of Romans in a similar way that Goosen is doing right now on Mondays. And the reason why you won't hear me quote any scripture tonight, except maybe in the Q&A section, is that, well, I might quote it in passing or paraphrase it, but I'm not going to dive into a particular text for two reasons. One, there are too many texts for me to dive into to cover all of this in the time that I have. The second reason is that if you want to have a biblical defense, go listen to him walk through the book of Romans. Because that's exactly what I would have done tonight, and I don't want to spoil his fun by speed running the book of Romans in an hour. Um, I'll leave that to him over the course of many weeks, as it should be done. And if, if you want to hear a biblical defense of these doctrines, just go and sit and plow through the book of Romans. And if you come out the other side not believing these things, then I am convinced that you have misunderstood or, in the worst case, mishandled the book of Romans. Each of these things can be found and are taught in that book. It's, all, it's taught in other places in the Bible. taught all over the Bible. But the book of Romans does cover this entire theological idea. Okay. Um, on the point of the controversy, as I was teaching the book of Romans, I got six weeks in which was way too fast. I, I finished <laughs> the book of Romans in six weeks. Don't do that. Uh, if, you're, if you're teaching the book of Romans, don't, don't finish it in six weeks. I finished it in six weeks and got kicked out of the college ministry, which was also where I was living. So I got kicked out of my house, me and my roommate. He was teaching it too, um, just in a smaller Bible study than the one I was teaching at the time. It was in like a small group setting and I was teaching like a classroom style Bible study. Um, 
we both got kicked out. We lost our place to live. We lost our most immediate family at the time. Um, I almost lost my actual biological family over this. Uh, my parents got really mad at me when I came home telling them that I believe this stuff. Um, my mom came around because she actually said, well, if it's in the Bible, I have to believe it. And so she started to study the Bible, study the verses I was telling her, taught this stuff. She came around. My dad has now come around many years later um, on it. But it caused a big rift between. So, so, so when I say this is controversial, when, when Justin says it's controversial, it definitely can be. And you might just not know it. <laughs> um, and it may be controversial for people around you. So I, I say that to caution everyone. If at the end of this, you go, yeah, that is what I believe. And that is, I agree with that. If you teach it under the name of anything besides Calvinism, you will probably not cause any problems. But the second you mention that name, you can cause some serious kerfluffles in certain parts of the world. I will qualify it with that statement. I live in the South. I live in Southern Baptist country and the bad kind of Southern Baptist country. It is not well liked here by lots of people. Um, so, you know, you may be in a different context where people just don't even know what it is. They never heard of it. And if they have, they're actually pretty, you know, amenable to it. But I, I say that qualify everything. Um, there is a stage that people go through when they begin to believe the doctrines of grace that we now affectionately call a cage stage. And, and the reason we call it that is that people should be locked in a cage with their Bible until they understand how to make use of these doctrines in terms of how it should humble you. And I'm going to say that at the end too. This, the, the truth I'm going to articulate within, it should humble the human heart immensely. And that's what it did in Calvin's day. Because the chief error of the Roman Catholic Church is that they did not believe the Bible when the Bible said that all glory should go to God alone and not to any man. And all authority was with God alone and not with any man. And all power and, 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 all, and, and truth and all these things are wrapped up in God alone and not with any man. That was the chief error at the end of, uh, you parse through all the other ones, that was the foundational error of Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation. And... Calvinism was the antidote. It was the uh, vaccine to the virus. It was the uh, just burn and tear through all of that error because it humbled the human heart chiefly and firstly. So, That's what it should do. If it doesn't do that to you, then you haven't quite understood it yet. So you ought not go around spreading it. If you don't understand it. <laughs> All right. Qualifications out of the way. Because I've taught this before without those qualifications. And I've seen people destroy relationships with other people, destroy, do all kinds of dumb things.
beforehand. All right, there we go. Done. Now, historical context for Calvin and Arminius. Who are they? Who were they? And why should you care? Well, John Calvin is considered one of the what's called the magisterial reformers, uh, usually thought of as Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. These were the guys who really set out the basic principles of the Reformation and were the guys who kick-started the Reformation in different parts of Western Europe, Luther in Germany, Zwingli in Sweden, and Calvin also in Sweden, but in France, uh, chiefly. And France was very hostile to the Reformation. And so Calvin did a lot of his time in Sweden as a result um, as a pastor in Geneva. Or sorry, not Sweden, Switzerland. Zwingli, Sweden, Calvin, Switzerland. Sorry. Um, and <clears throat> Calvin only lived for about 50 years, and then he died. I think 50, 54 years, 56 years. And around the time of his death, another guy is born in the Netherlands into the Dutch Reformed Church named Jacob, Jacobus Arminius. So when people talk about the conflict between Calvinism and Arminianism, neither Calvin nor Arminius knew each other or talked to each other. They were a generation apart. Arminius lived for about 49 years through the beginning of the 1600s and then dies. He and Calvin probably actually would have gotten along okay. Let me just put that out there. What many people, when they say they're an Armenian, now, I, I, not, not to be confused with Armenian, which is a country, or Armenia, um, uh, Ar Arminianism, uh, you are probably correct, Larry Boy. I'm probably confusing my Europe, because I am a stupid American, and I'm probably confusing my European countries. Spingley is likely also Swiss. Um, but there it is. Um, Okay, back to what I was doing. Um, so, so, so Calvin and Arminius uh, never met, didn't know each other. But by the time of Arminius's day, Calvin has died but left behind what's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, among many other sermons and writings. Institutes of the Christian Religion is a fantastic book. I recommend reading it. I haven't read all of it yet. There it is. Um, good Calvinist I am. I haven't even read all of Calvin. Uh, look at that. Um, and that's why I say that this is not about the particular men. Some people will try to make an argument against Calvinism by charging moral, you know, de deprivation to Calvin. That's not an argument against what he taught. Uh, it's a logical fallacy. Don't do that. Don't do it to the other side either. It's not how this works. Uh, the question is, is what they taught biblical? It's what they taught in the Bible, because that is our final authority on theology. So, so Calvin has his progeny, his spiritual progeny, who end up being the Reformed churches in Western Europe and in the Netherlands, in, in, the, in the Dutch church, uh, you have Arminius growing up in it. 
and he gets taught Calvinism growing up. He later goes on to teach, becomes a, a professor at the University of Leiden, and he begins to teach against Calvinism on four of the five points. He did believe and taught total depravity. And so if there is an Arminian in the world who says they're an, Ar an Arminian and doesn't believe in total depravity, they're not an Arminian. They're semi-Pelagian, which I won't go into all of that at the moment, but the, you, you're, you don't become an Arminian by simply not being a Calvinist. I'll just put it that way. Some people, when trying to argue this, end up in that boat. Um, so uh, Arminius begins to teach counterpoints his spiritual children, his progeny there. Then uh, it, it, the, the French ones oddly, or no, sorry, not the French ones. It, it's, we're, we're still Dutch. We're still in the, in the Dutch area. I'm getting some of my stuff and my history confused. This is what you get for getting me on, a, on an off day. Sorry. Um, if you want to get the history straight, literally just go read the Wikipedia articles. That's it. It's it's pretty accurate, actually. Um, so, uh, the Dutch spiritual progeny of Arminius start this thing called the Remonstrance, and the Remonstrance articulate five major points upon which they are disagreeing with the established Dutch Church on certain doctrines. The synod, a synod is called, because these are good Presbyterians, so they call a synod of churches together to hash this out. And in that synod, the canons of Dort, the, the synod is called at, at, at Dortrecht, the city of, of Dortrecht, and at the synod of Dort, the canons of Dort are hashed out as a response to the remonstrance points. So the five points of Calvinism are actually negations of the Arminian remonstrance five points they're a response <laughs> to something else so that's important to know that's why i'm giving historical background it's important to know one that the five points were not articulated by either calvin or arminius but by their a generation later on, on both uh, almost two uh distant from calvin um and the five points of calvinism that are articulated today are a response to the uh, five points of the remonstrance. Um, so that's, there's your historical background. Now, what are the five points of Calvinism? Well, the, the acrostic that is often used historically is tulip. It's acrostic, so each letter stands for a different word or phrase. The T stands for total depravity. And what that means, and this is important to get right, um, this is foundational to the rest. This is what, in many ways, I could defend a lot of these from Ephesians 1 and 2. In fact, I think I could defend all of them, all five points from Ephesians 1 and 2, just as much as through the book of Romans. But last week, when I was talking to you guys from Ephesians 2, and I talked uh, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Total depravity is the assertion that humanity 
united to Adam in his original sin is spiritually, morally, intellectually depraved. They are evil. The thoughts of their hearts are evil and evil continually, as it says in Genesis chapter 6, I believe. Um, or uh, righteous deeds or filthy rags, as I... You know, you, you, you can assemble all the verses that say this that kind of stuff. Um, Justin's already walked through this with you through Romans 1 through 3. Total depravity is, was clearly taught, if, if nowhere else, in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 3. Total depravity is the assertion that humanity, apart from God's grace, is completely, utterly wicked and evil and has nothing good in them. At all. Cannot do good. Cannot seek after God. Cannot love God. Cannot have faith. Cannot repent. Cannot believe. None of those things can happen. Because of their nature. Their hearts. Are evil and wicked. That's the assertion. Now. Because of what is called common grace. We are not as bad as we would be or could be. So God restrains the evil in the hearts of men so that they do not do all the evil that they would want to do otherwise. And so everybody isn't literally Hitler or you know, pick your bad guy uh, because of God's common grace. Not because their hearts are not depraved. Not because there is no good in them. The Bible teaches that very straightforwardly and clearly, and this is why Arminius could not dispute that point. This was not a point of disputation. Total depravity what was not. It, the way he, he found a way to get around it by teaching uh, on this thing called prevenient grace, instead of common grace that merely restrains evil, prevenient grace actually changes the heart away from evil for pretty much everybody. And makes them able positively, positively to do the good things without God having much of a direct intervention in, in, in just keeping them instead of a, a negative action where he just keeps them from doing the evil things. He's actually positively changing their heart, but not all the way, which is why it gets really confusing at that point. Um, it, with total depravity, you either are in the state of total depravity or your heart has been made new by God's grace. As we talked about last time, sola, sola gratia is God's grace alone that he has made your heart new such that you will then believe. The, the new heart is designed, it is a new creation in Christ that then believes the gospel, that then trusts the promises of God and believes in him. And that apart from that grace, there is no salvation. Apart from this intervening grace, there's no salvation. Now, uh, that's total depravity in a nutshell. It is not, again, it's not utter depravity. People are not as bad as they could be simply because God restrains them. That's important to, to keep in mind because uh, uh, an argument against Calvinism is sometimes, well, if total depravity were true, then we would see every single non-Christian just w would be Hitler. But that's not what it teaches. It doesn't 
teach that. So there you go. You know, Calvinist who understands it believes that or teaches it. Okay. The U. The U is probably the one that gets most people's feathers ruffled besides the L, and it stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. Now, Arminius also believed in election. So, so let, let's, let's get this straight here. The only people who don't believe in election are people who don't believe in the Bible. Because the Bible clearly teaches some form of election. Now, what do I mean by election? Not the way that we think about it in America, where we're, we're about to have an election, where we vote for people. No, God didn't vote, <laughs> vote for you to be a Christian. Um, by election, it means that he, he elected you, but, but he doesn't do it by vote. He does it by divine fiat. He does it by declaration. He does it by choice. He is free to choose who he will save. That is the basic premise of unconditional election is that God has ultimate freedom. He is the only autonomous being in the universe. He's the only being who, who has the right and power to rule himself, to choose for himself freely what he wants to do at any point in time. And because of that freedom, he is the only one who can decide who he's going to save. If salvation, if we are totally depraved, in our natural state, in Adam, then it is God has to make the first move. And if not everyone is saved, that means that God chooses who he is going to save. So from the basic premise of God's freedom, God's autonomy, and God's sovereign power over the creation he has made, we could even if the Bible didn't teach it, you can infer logically from those other things the Bible teaches that election were true. Now, the unconditional part is the part that the Bible clearly teaches. Because of total depravity, there's nothing good in us. And there's nothing that, that distinguishes us from anyone around us that would cause God to look at us and say, hey, that guy has the kind of stuff that I want in a Christian so I'm now going to be gracious to him and save him. No, unconditional election simply means that it is grace. It is unmerited, unearned, unconditional love and mercy that prompts God to save a person. And it only becomes election because the Bible clearly teaches that not everyone's going to be saved. So it would just be the doctrine of unconditional love if we were universalists. But the Bible teaches clearly that there are people who will not be saved. So we have to deal with that. It also teaches that God chooses who he's going to save. Now, again, walk through the book of Romans. You'll see it. It's there. I don't have time to defend all of it biblically. But I do believe Bible cover to cover teaches that God has the prerogative, right, authority as creator to choose what to do with his creation I've been teaching that in here for over a year, I think, at this point. Um, and if you, if you agree with that basic premise, then what follows from that is that God can be in no way charged with, with any kind of evil or unfairness for choosing to save who he wants to save. If God were being fair, everyone would go to hell. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are under his wrath. By nature, children are wrath like the rest of mankind. Quoting from Romans and Ephesians. If God were fair, everything's gone. Uh, everybody's gone. Uh, but he's not. <laughs> he's not fair to us. He is incredibly unfair by being gracious and then saves. And a way that this is often misconstrued is people will say, well, then that means that there's only going to be a, a, a very few number of people who are elect, who are predestined, who are saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, from the promises to Abraham to the promises, is it, I, I'm going to give, he tells Jesus, the father tells the son, I'm going to give you the nations into your hand. Uh, he's going to give him the whole cosmos that the, the, the number of believers who are found with the faith of Abraham, as you guys hopefully learned some about uh, yesterday, if you were there for uh, Romans 4 study, uh, those who are found with the faith of Abraham will outnumber the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky, which we now know there's a lot more stars in the sky than even Abraham could have imagined. But God knew how many they were. That that is true. So, so the number of elect are innumerable, literally in Revelation, they cannot be numbered. That's what it says. So, again, the important thing is to believe all that the Bible teaches. It teaches that God is sovereign over his creation. He has creator rights to do what he wants. That we have nothing good in us that would prompt him to say, hey, I really want to save that person instead of this person because I've got knowledge of, of, of them that makes me go. Yeah, they've, they've got the stuff that makes a good Christian, so I'm going to save them. No. That's, that's the whole point of needing salvation. <laughs> you, you don't have that stuff in you. Uh, you you don't you would not make a good Christian in your natural state, and then God changes your heart. He changes your nature such that you then desire Him and want to love Him and believe in Him and His gospel. So that's unconditional election. And if that's true, the next step is what the L is often called limited atonement. Now the atonement is. Uh, the understanding of, of who did Jesus bleed for? Who did he die for? Who was he a sacrifice for? That's the question it's answering. And by saying it's limited, it, it doesn't, it, it's not a negative thing for it to be limited. If it's unlimited, but then God doesn't save everyone, that means that it's not a sufficient sacrifice. And that's really bad. That's really bad and goes against the teaching of the book of Hebrews, by the way. Um, but limited atonement means that Jesus only dies for the people that he's going to save. His sacrifice only applies for the people he's going to save. So the people that God will save in time are the people who Jesus suffers and dies for. And the reason that that is believed, well, one, I think the Bible teaches it in Hebrews, among other places. But if we just want to follow out, again, logical inferences from the previous premises that we've established, if 
God is gracious to a limited number of people, then that means that Jesus only dies for those people. That's just the next inference. Um, because that that is the source. Again, we talked about the solus Christus. Jesus and his person and work are the source of salvation for all who are saved. Which means that when he bleeds and dies under the wrath of God, that wrath is only propitiated. It is only uh, substituted for a certain number of people, namely the ones whom, for whom he came to die, the elect, the people who God will save graciously. He doesn't die for the other people who God will not save. Why? Because if he did, then the wrath of God against them would not exist, just as it doesn't exist for the Christian, for the person who is saved, which means that nobody goes to hell, which means you're a universalist. <laughs> so. There you go. <laughs> that's that's not good. <laughs> um, or you radically understand the atonement in a different way. In order to get around this, you have to either or you understand the atonement not as a substitutionary sacrifice where he is standing in the place of particular people, but instead he's standing in the place of a non-specific group of people. Or he's not. Or he's not a substitute. But again, that flies both of those fly in the face of the biblical teaching on this atonement, the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the eye. The eye is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. So we have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and finally, we have, uh, not finally, uh, almost finally, we have irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means that when God is gracious to a person, he, he wins. When he, when he shows this, this saving grace to someone, he will win over their depravity. He will win over their hardness of heart. He will change the human heart. He wins. That's all it means. That God, is more, God is stronger than you. Big surprise. He made you out of dust of the ground and breathed life into you. He spoke the universe into existence by the word of his mouth. He's stronger than you are. That, that's it. That's, that's what it means. And that his grace is much stronger and overcomes the darkness and sin and rebellion of the human heart. And that when he aims his grace at someone, he doesn't miss. He hits every time. Finally, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is the last one. Perseverance of the saints means... Uh, not not saints in the Roman Catholic sense, because at this point the, the saints were were every Christian, um, in a reformed understanding of things. Every Christian is a saint in that sense, in the sense of being a holy people called out by God um, to belong to Him. And uh, it, it means that anyone who God has elected to salvation has shown initial grace to in regeneration and giving them a new heart in bringing them to faith in Christ, he will cause them to persevere to the end as well. That salvation from beginning to end, as we talked about last week, last week is, is, is interesting. If you agreed with a lot of things I said last week, but disagree with what I say this week, you've got some inconsistencies you have to wrestle with. Salvation from beginning to end is all of Christ. For all of your life, 
from every area, top to bottom. The, the Christian is made one and kept one by the work person of work and person of Christ. And that comes to us through the grace of God. And that he will persevere us through our life. Now, we may suffer trials of doubt, trials of, of, of backsliding, grievous sins against God. But the Christian will persevere to the end in faith, to the end of their life in faith. That's what perseverance of the saints means. It means that it, it is different from once saved, always saved, which is a more simplistic teaching that once you believe and get baptized, you're good no matter what you do the rest of your life. Perseverance of the saints simply is the assertion that God will persevere you in the faith, in good works, in doing the things that mark you out as a Christian, in repentance and faith. Those things will be, even if it's in the tiniest seed form, they will be there until you die because they are there by the grace of God and not by your own doing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And nine. So that's the tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That is Calvinism. The short version. The shortest version I've done in my life, besides having the conversation on the, on the fly when someone asked me. Um, so... I want to try to do that quickly so there would be time for questions, but, and I did, I succeeded. We have some time, but let me pray. Um, before I do that, let me make clear again. What does all that mean? How does that change your life? How does believing Calvinism change your life at all? Well, here, here's how it changed mine. Um, it is that I did not understand the gospel until I understood this. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't understand the gospel without understanding Calvinism, but it it, it showed me the how much God loved me because it showed me how sinful I was, how much he did to save me, how powerful and sovereign he is over my salvation, which then gave me hope for my Christian life, which many people often struggle with, right? And lastly, it humbled me. There's nothing I did or am to deserve the grace of God. In fact, the opposite is true. I deserve nothing from God but his just holy wrath. But instead, he shows me love and grace. I deserve nothing, yet he's given me everything. How can I not live for him after that? How can I not worship him? How can I not depend upon him after understanding that? All right, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for your love and grace toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you loved us, you gave yourself for us, and that ultimately uh, we, we, we bring nothing to our salvation except our sin, as Jonathan Edwards once said. And uh, 
As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. This is the sum of the gospel that we are desperate sinners who need your grace, your mercy, and the sacrifice of Christ in order to live in your world as your creatures and under your lordship. We praise you and thank you for the grace that you extend to so many and for revealing such deep and wonderful mysteries to us. The mystery of the gospel, that you, a just and holy God, would love and be gracious to undeserving sinners. We have no other response but to be thankful and to live lives of, of repentance and trust in you. Help us to do that as you have promised to do, as Christ's death has secured for us. We ask for your glory. Amen. Amen. That was some good stuff, Josh. It was a nice history and theology lesson. Really enjoyed Which it. Which I got more of the history right. Than <laughs> that. No, it's fine. Um, yeah, now we're going to move on to the question and answer portion of the topical study. So uh, I imagine there's probably a few questions that are going to be asked. So you feel free to either type in the text chat. We already got one from Larry Boy. Or you can use your your vocal cords and, and unmute. Just be mindful of uh, people trying to, to talk as well. Just you know, take turns, act like civilized people. That's all I ask. But yeah, y'all can go ahead and start doing that. Well, let me start by answering Larry Boy's question. Uh, yes, you did understand that correctly. Um, if, again, it, it, it's it's pretty much goes like this, and this is an argument that, that uh, Puritan John Owen made. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it, but if Jesus is a substitute, so he stands in the place of uh of a person before God and bears the wrath of God meant for them for their sin and then gives them in that exchange his righteousness if he's a substitute in that way bearing the sin as a sin bearing substitute for all people for every individual who has ever lived and ever will live then everyone will be saved because all of the things that flow from his death it is all the things that constitute our salvation. The new heart that God gives us, the faith that we then have, the sanctification comes, all of it comes from that moment, from that uh, life and death of Jesus. And so, if you believe that he's a substitute in that way for every single person, then you also must believe that everyone will be saved. And there are some people who, who go that way. They, they go that far. Um, the only way around it is to either deny that his sacrifice was substitutionary or what I had just articulated, he is only substitutionarily sacrificed for a certain number of people. Now, there is another way that was crafted during this time by a fellow named Emeraldius. Don't ask me for the, all the history on him because I don't know it well enough at the moment. I used to know more of it. But his position was essentially that Jesus' death was a hypothetical 
substitution that is inappropriated by faith. Um, the Emeraldian position is another way that, that you, you, you may be able to get around that, but I, I don't think that's taught in the Bible. <laughs> um, so there's that. Like You would need to defend that position from Scripture. I'm not sure how um, Emerald... I, I think it's yeah. I think it's just Amaral. Um, uh, I don't know how he did it, but I haven't found it. <laughs> I haven't found a hypothetical substitution uh, in scripture yet. So, hey, if he's right, he's right. But I haven't found it yet. Um, but that is my answer to your question, Larry Boy. I hope that clarifies things a little bit. Um, yeah, so, yeah, uh, second Timothy, or uh, sorry, first Timothy two, three to four. Yes, I would love to explain it. Th so there's a couple of texts that when you bring this up, people immediately ask about, um, this is one of them. There's different ways Calvinists have gone about explaining this. Um, John Piper has a weird way where he, he has a whole book about this where he describes two wills in God, essentially. I, I, I don't think that you need to do that. I think the text explains itself by placing these verses in their context. So let me read more of the context, and, and then we'll look. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, you could take that to mean every single individual person, but I don't think Paul is telling you that you need to find out the names of every person on the planet and pray for them individually. However nice it would be to be able to do that, I don't think that's what he's saying. But So, so will he explain himself then? If that's not what he's saying, is he going to explain himself? Yeah. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the all people is explained and expanded on by the next part of the sentence. So the temptation for a persecuted people, which would have been at the time, is that the people who are persecuting you, praying for them is the hard thing to do. This is why Paul talks about praying for your enemies. Jesus talks about the same thing. Why? Because that's, that's the hard thing to do. Praying for the people who like you is easy. Praying for the people who are, who are like you is easy. Praying for the people in the same social class, in the same church, in your family, that's the easy thing to do. Making supplication, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions is the harder thing to do, especially if they don't like you and they're persecuting you. And praying for their salvation. This was a question that the early church had to wrestle with, which is, uh, what do we do if the emperor repents? What do we do if Caesar becomes a Christian and they didn't get to a good answer before it happened? 
and Constantine converts and things go a little haywire for a little bit because suddenly the church that was persecuted becomes the church that's in charge. And they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, so, but, but you do have to believe, for example, no matter who wins the election, Trump or Biden, desiring for them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth is a good thing. They can be saved. Just because someone has power and their sin is public doesn't mean they can't be saved. That's what this text is about. This is good, and verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, which that's an important line there, but I won't go into that one now. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so the all people has to be defined by the previous usage of it in verse 1, which is, as Justin so quippily put it, all kinds of people. Because that's what Paul has in view here. If it just means all people, then the natural question arises, why doesn't God then save all people? But that is a misuse of the text because contextually, that's not what he's talking about. And the next verse makes it clear that he doesn't mean every person. Why? Because of what I said earlier about substitution. Verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and men, the man, Christ Jesus, Verse 6, this is huge, who gave himself as a ransom, as a sacrifice for all. Now, if remember, if he gave himself as a sacrifice for everyone in a substitutionary fashion, that means that everyone is saved. So if Paul is saying all, and by all he means every single individual person, he's teaching universalism. That's what that would mean. But we know that from other places that Paul doesn't believe that. So, again, contextually, it's all kinds of people. That Jesus did die for certain Roman emperors. He did die for people who are kings and in high positions. And they will be saved. God is going to save people like that. And he has, historically. So, uh, yeah, that, uh, there you go. So just reading it in context, you see that if you carry all people as every individual person who ever has been and will be into the previous verses and the verses that come after, you end up in the first case, by in the previous verses, misunderstanding the point. And if you carry into the one after, you end up believing a heresy. So... There you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Good example. Like Kanye West. Goodness. He's, he's got a ways to go in terms of the sanctification department, but so, so do we all. So do we all. But he's got some interesting beliefs still about the world. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't adopted a full-blown Christian worldview yet. Um, but he's able to articulate the gospel. I'll give him that. 
Um, I, I've, I've heard him do that very clearly. So there's that. Anyway. So it is 8.01. Um, we can either continue to answer potential questions, considering we've really only answered two, or we can... Uh, we cannot answer any more questions. Uh, well, well, what are you, what are you feeling up to, Josh? There's there's only one from Graceful Fire. We could answer Graceful Fire's question and have that be the last one. Depends on how long Josh would like to go. I can. I do need to go soon, but I can rapid fire some. Uh, I I can rapid fire response a, a few questions, probably. Um, okay. Josh is now toggling. From semi-automatic to rapid fire, so correct. Ask away. Hit me. Whoever's next. Okay. Do you, do you not have a Mullen question, Graceful? Question fire? mark. No, I said there was only one because uh, JC123 only joined and not the partner. Wait, is that something else? What's something else? There's the two people that join every time at the same time and never speak. That's JC123 and and Genji. Genji's not here today. (laughs) Okay, Josh. Molinism okay. question mark. That's that's the well, question. Uh yeah, if there's no other questions, um then Oh, sorry, oh. I do have a question. I just thought of one. Actually I thought of one a while ago but forgot, but just remembered it now. Um yeah. why is it that say a Calvinist would be like I don't know, like hated against or whatever, like is it more they don't like the idea of someone? Uh, sorry, my brother. Uh, someone who uh, is chosen by God to be saved, and people who are chosen to not be saved. Is that why? Maybe. Yeah, that that's the gist of why people don't like it. Um, generally, is that part? Um, is that they cannot fathom that God could be loving and restrict his love to a certain number of people. <laughs> um, that, that, they're like, that, that, that's not okay. Yeah. And, and the, the thing that's behind that is the idealized version of the freedom of the will that many people hold in their minds, which is that I am completely free to decide my own fate which is a uniquely, you know, 18th, 19th, not even 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century idea. Um, that, that, that my fate is in my hands, my destiny is in my hands, and I'm going to grasp it and take control of it, and I will decide, heaven or hell, that, that, that is, I am the captive of my own soul. Uh, it completely blows that idea out of the water and people don't like that because they would really like to, uh, you know, a lot of people deal with anxiety. What is anxiety? It is, it is uh, being afraid because you do not have control of your life and the circumstances around you. 
that's often is, is that I'm going to, I, I, I'm, I'm about to enter a situation or I am in a situation what, that I have no control over. That is often the, you know, the general feeling that people get when they're anxious. Um, and people hate being anxious and to acknowledge and live in a world where you have no control over your eternal destiny in life uh, at the end of the day is anxiety inducing for people. So they get really bad. <laughs> um, I had a lady in my parents' Bible study when I first came home teaching this who actually broke down in tears. Um, my, when my, when my, my mom came around and started agreeing with me, she asked me to teach it to her Bible study from her church. <laughs> and I did. And this lady just argued with me and yelled at me and then just started crying. She was like, if the, cause she couldn't argue with me from the Bible. Cause I was just quoting Bible verse, Bible verse, Bible verse. And I, I, in that case, I have been a jerk about this in the past with certain people, but I wasn't in that particular situation. And, uh, but yeah, she just broke down and started crying because it was highly offensive. Um, uh, the founding fathers, if they were Christians, they would, they would have been Calvinistic, uh, Winston. Right. Yeah. Arminianism didn't really gain a lot of traction. Turns out the Synod of Dort kind of put the kibosh on it for a while. And, uh, but it, it came back <laughs> real strong. Really, semi-Pelagianism came back. Arminianism is actually... There's, I, I, I barely know any actual Arminians who would agree with Arminius. Um, but uh, semi-Pelagianism is, is all over the place, which is just Arminianism light with a sprinkle of free will in there where it's a I am completely autonomous and that God cannot impose his will upon mine otherwise he doesn't love me which is a bold assertion to make um, against your creator to tell him how he can love you and what love is when he tells us that he is love and he is the standard of love but uh, there it is uh, Winston asked Molinism question mark Molinism is a philosophical system. I mean, I'm in machine gun mode, by the way, so prepare yourself for a little bit of snark because that's the only way to get things out quickly. Um, Molinism is a philosophical system which asserts that God looks down the corridors of time and sees the faith of a person in a hypothetical possible world that they would have faith in if he didn't interfere. And because they have they would believe in him in a world, a possible world in which God doesn't interfere. Because of that, he then saves them in the actual world. That's the short version of it. There are different flavors of Molinism. The kind that Molina taught is not always the kind that you encounter when, you, when someone says they're a Molinist. So whenever someone says they're a Molinist, I have to ask them, what do you mean by that? So there you go. That's, uh, but it, 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 they're, they're not possible worlds in the Bible. 
So that's why I say it's a philosophical system, because it starts with the assumption that God engages in modal logic, which is a logical uh, system, which I actually enjoy messing with. Modal logic is fun if you do symbolic logic and you do that kind of stuff. Like, modal logic is fun. But uh, it is not God deals with the world he made. Uh, and, and we don't know all of the workings of the mind of God in how he deals with the world that he has made. And Molinism asserts way too much about how God thinks that we don't know that is not revealed in the Bible. So there's that. All right. Uh, would you say modern Arminianism has a lot of roots in Finney's revivals in the 1800s? Absolutely. Absolutely. Finneyism uh, is the root of much of modern Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism, because Finney himself was very much so uh, an, 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 an anti-Calvinist, um, which means he didn't he didn't fill nature hates a vacuum. So when he railed against Calvinism, he didn't give a enough of a positive articulation uh, of what could fill its place, and so what fills its place is all kinds of stuff. And that's usually all kinds of bad stuff. But yeah, there's definitely, um, that's why I said that the kind of Arminianism that exists today didn't really exist until the 1800s. And that's precisely why. Grace of Fire, hit me. What's your question? Um, would uh, Calvinism uh, discount the argument like you know how atheists will use the argument uh, why would God create such an inferior being um, knowing what would happen to him and people will respond with oh well he would do that or he would let us be able to sin because he wouldn't want to create robots would Calvinism discount that argument yeah I, I do not use that argument with atheists because I don't <laughs> Well, I don't think that we're robots. Um, we're clearly not. But I also don't think we're autonomous. And that's a, that's a distinction to be made. There's a creaturely will that God clearly gives us, where we do make real, tangible choices and interact with the world. Um, and we are responsible before our maker. We have to answer to God for what we do with our life that he's given us. That's clear. And no Calvinist disputes that premise. The thing that to be disputed is autonomous freedom, libertarian free will, not to be confused with libertarian political theory, um, but libertarian free will is a philosophical way to define autonomous freedom, that you are completely and utterly a self-ruled person. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. The nations are like water in the hands of God, streams that he... The, the, the hearts of kings are streams in his hands. <laughs> oh, did my voice go robot when I said that? That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so, so the, the Bible does clearly does not teach autonomy, which means that you can't use it as an argument against an atheist. Now, the argument I would use against the atheist, which I have used, I have a fun story about this, actually. There was an atheist in my philosophy classes who knew me it was interesting. So before I became a Calvinist, when I first became a Christian, since I was raised in a good old boy type Southern Baptist church, um, I had been taught to believe in autonomous freedom and taught that very argument. And I used it with him. 
And he argued back that actually, no, we're not free. Everything's deterministic. And to refute his argument, I pulled a book out of my book bag and threw it on the ground and said, ha, I chose to do that. I've refuted your argument. But he clearly didn't think so. Two years later, we're standing outside uh, the library at school talking, and he asked me the question that you just asked. And I answer him this. Say, well, God created inferior things created creation in order to save it that that is if nothing else is clear in the bible that's clear that he created all things by christ and for christ for, for christ to do what jesus christ does there are a couple of things that are necessary namely a fallen humanity to die for and save so the, the reason god makes stuff is for his own purposes because he's God and he can do that. And he said, I've never heard when he, he said, the first thing he said was, I've never heard that before. The second thing he said was that's actually a consistent response within the, you know, the things that he's knows about the Bible. That makes a lot more sense than the, well, it's because God loves our freedom so much. God loves freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, which implies that you weren't free beforehand. <laughs> but if the question is, what kind of freedom? It's freedom from slave enslavement to sin and death and the fear of death. That's freedom. True freedom is found in Christ by being a slave to Christ. True freedom is found in a new kind of slavery to Christ and his will and his work and his purposes in the world. So, yeah. Uh, As in, like, you're free from sin? Like, you still sin, but you're free from, like, living in sin? Yeah, yeah, You because now you can actually do otherwise. You can actually obey God. You can actually do positive things in the world uh, from a, with a clean conscience and a new heart. Um. You can actually worship God in spirit and truth. You can actually live the way that a human was designed to live, which is in relationship, in right relationship, in a peaceful relationship to their creator. That freedom is found in submission to God. That's what, because he, he saves you and then he doesn't tell you, hey, you need to go to a monastery and live out the rest of your life you know, being a monk. He doesn't do that. Why do so many Christians have this question? I, I just, I, I really want to know, how do I discover what God's will for my life is? Well, <laughs> his will for your life is that you be a Christian in everything that you do. So pick something that's good that you like and go do it and be a Christian while you're doing it. You have freedom now in Christ to do that. God actually sets you free. There's a reason that so much of the world progressed so quickly after the Reformation, technologically, and all of that. And it's because men were free. They, they had freedom in the gospel to actually go and just build stuff, to build cities and institutions and boats and uh, light bulbs. And all, like, all of that stuff came, from, came out of the Protestant Reformation. Why? 
It's because the gospel frees people to live as Christians in God's world and actually do things. But it doesn't grant autonomous freedom. You have to live in God's world. And he's the Lord of it. He sets the rules. But he doesn't tell you, you, need, you have to build all of your boats this exact way. Unless you're Noah. <laughs> and it's just one boat. And you better build that one right. <laughs> um, but he doesn't tell you how to tie your shoes. He'll tell you what shoes to wear. Like You have so much freedom in Christ to live consistently with, the, and he does, he gives you rules, he gives you a law, and you do need to follow that as a Christian um, to, to obey God. But again, because obedience to God is freedom. His yoke, his binding on you is easy and his burden is light. Sorry, that was a bit of a different soapbox. Uh, but you got me on it. All right, I'm done. Any other questions? I think we might have to call the cutoff. It's eight eighteen. Okay. Yeah, I, I, th I think I'm calling it. If you have the machine gun has been yeah. fired, I'm out of ammo. <laughs> A lot of ammo. Um, if you have other questions, you can still post them, and I might reply in the chat in the morning. Uh, but yeah, unhostaged. Yeah, we are. We are now officially done. <laughs> <laughs>